we search for the same answers But you're asking the wrong questions Ain't it true? You're wondering why bad things Only happen to other people on the Hello and welcome to Wake Up and Smell the Coffee, the podcast packed with fantastic facts about our natural world. I'm Tom the Blowfish Herd, the world's only heavy metal marine biologist, and thank you for joining me today. You've made a good choice, a very good choice, because today we're going to be looking at the deep ocean. Okay, we're going to learn some badass facts about it, uh, about some of the creatures that live there, see what issues it's facing, and see what we can do about it to make it that little bit better. So, deep ocean, where do you where do you start? Because the deep ocean is actually the largest habitat on Earth. Okay, it covers sixty six percent of all the Earth's surface. I mean, take yourself a globe. Or good old-fashioned map, and you can see how much water is out there. You know, this is the old classic, isn't it? 70% of the Earth's surface is water. Well, <laughs> once you go below 200 metres, it's technically deep ocean. So you end up with 66% of the Earth's surface. The other 4% is the shallow water zones. It's, it's an, it is this planet. If you wanted to say, right, okay, what would the poster child for planet Earth be as far as an animal is concerned? It would have to be something from the deep ocean because it is the biggest habitat. And it likely contains about 25% of all life on Earth, potentially even more. Uh, It's so difficult to study, to map, to visit, that we actually have more detailed maps of Mars than we have our own ocean floor, which, I, I mean, give yourself a second to, to really think about that. The, I find quite hard for me, uh, I find what's quite hard for me sometimes is we deal, as scientific communicators, we deal with so much hyperbole, you know, the the biggest this, the largest that, the heaviest whatever, and at times it really can lose its impact. But just stop and think. We have more detailed maps, more detailed knowledge of the surface of a planet which is in a different part of our solar system, which is years and years and years away if you were taking a a, a, a shuttle there, okay? A one-way trip. We have more knowledge about the surface of that planet, the surface of Mars, than we do our deep ocean which is here right now on this planet. That is incredible. That is incredible to know more about a planet that isn't even our own. You know, mad stuff. Um, and I'll, I'll get to, you know, a couple of reasons why that is in a minute. But what actually is the deep ocean? Well, I said, d- didn't I briefly, that 70% of the Earth's surface is water and, and 66% is, is deep ocean. Well, that's because, as I say, deep ocean is considered to be anything below 200 metres, okay? And, and this is the depth at which light no longer penetrates. It's also known as the photic zone. There you go. There's an extra added little fact for you. You can put that one in your back pocket, and next time you're getting a coffee, you can bust that one out and say, did you know that the photic zone is the first 200 metres of the ocean? <laughs> I'm sure you won't be doing that. but So uh, this this is the shallow sunlit waters, and of this... 66% deep ocean, 70% earth surface water. The 4% is that photic zone. It's that shallow area. Past that, light no longer penetrates. Okay. Now, that isn't essentially 100% true, but it is true enough. Okay. After 200 meters, you're really only recording as little as 1% of the light that has originally entered the ocean makes it to 200 meters and by the time that you get to 1000 meters so a kilometer down it is all completely gone okay uh the 
the way that light works is that I mean light is energy isn't it it's, it's energy in its purest form and so when light hits the ocean surface it warms up causes the little molecules the little uh, H2O molecules to jiggle about a bit and you've got to imagine that you're got the, you've got this huge laser beam of sunlight penetrating to the ocean and every time one of those photons one of those little bits of sunlight energy if you will photons is better but sunlight energy oh that's, that's terrible every time one of those photons hits and excites a water molecule and warms it up it's lost so this this laser beam of sun energy is getting weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker because it keeps knocking into h2o molecules and by the time as i say it reaches 200 meters 99 percent of it is gone by the time it reaches a thousand meters it's all gone. I once asked a lecturer at my university, is it possible for light to ever reach the bottom of the ocean? And his response was, mathematically, yes. (laughs) Which means no. (laughs) I mean, mathematically, it's possible for you to teleport through a wall, but it's never going to happen. So how deep is is the ocean then? We know that by the time we reach a thousand metres, one kilometre, that all the light is gone. I mean, that in itself is pretty deep. But it keeps going. You know, the ocean continues beyond, well beyond 1,000 metres. So the deepest point in the ocean, I'm sure many of you already know this, is the Mariana Trench. Well, actually, the deepest, deepest point is located within the trench, and it's known as the Challenger Deep. Very unique, interesting name there. And at that point in the Challenger Deep, you are talking about 10.9 kilometres, 11 kilometres, okay, 11 kilometres, the best part of seven miles, okay, seven miles, that is a long way down, so Everest, Mount Everest, the tallest peak on the planet, could fit into that gap and still give you over a mile to spare, you know, that's, I, I mean, again, what did I just say, we deal with hyperbole all the time, but that is a huge huge distance all right now the conditions of the deep ocean as i'm sure you can imagine differ from anything that we can see around us you look at a a desert you can understand it's a little bit drier than where you are you look at a rainforest you can understand it's a little bit leafier than where you are but it's you know all playing along a similar map that isn't the case for the deep ocean okay Uh, we we can understand the shallow and brightly lit surface waters we can also get the idea of of the way that pressure can make things change. You dive into a swimming pool, you dive right down to the bottom to show off to to somebody on the poolside, and you feel your ears wanting to pop. But this is this is nothing. This this is like scraping your fingernails against this obelisk of physics. Uh, the the deep ocean is an alien world. It really, really, truly is. The it is physically easier. So ignore the money here. But as far as demands on humans and materials and, you know, that kind of thing, it's physically easier for you to travel into space than it is for you to travel a mile or more down into the deep sea. Okay, that's how tough, how alien, how strange and completely incongruous this environment is to anything we really know. So what's going on down there? Well, we'll talk about light because I've already mentioned it. And as I said, you hit 200 meters and light quickly disappears. There's some chat about uh, that I could give you about how light separates out as it's coming down. But that's in the shallow waters. We're not interested in that. So we'll leave that for another podcast for another time. And immediately you will be fully forgiven for thinking that the deep ocean then must be entirely dark because no light is reaching it. Well, bizarrely enough it's actually filled with light okay but it's filled with light that's created by the animals and the organisms which live there we're going to come back to this again later and and when we talk more about the the creatures but it's actually incredible to think about it but it's the absence of sunlight the fact that there's this pure blackness that has created so much life in the ocean which i think is i think that's brilliant uh pressure that's the next thing pressure so we talked about diving into a swimming pool and you would have your your ears pop well (laughs) things get a little a little bit uh more intense if you were down at the bottom of the deep ocean the pressure would be 1000 times stronger than that at sea level so that is 
strong enough to immediately kill a human. And I'm talking, you know, compress them down into a sugar cube kind of stuff. Your body would just implode on itself, okay? Uh, That is strong enough to flatten metals, okay? It's, It's some pretty, pretty powerful stuff. And and the reason why life can even exist down there is because, and hey, we're going to have an old school physics lesson. What is the one thing that cannot be compressed? I hear you. I hear you cried out. Water. Well done. Five points to Gryffindor. <laughs> Actually, was that a Ravenclaw? I'm not sure. We'll come back to that later. That's a whole different, another different podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Marine biology meets Harry Potter. But yes, you cannot compress water fantastic trick of physics and so that means that as you go deeper and deeper into the ocean the animals that we see become more and more watery (laughs) they stop using uh, anything like an air pocket which of course is hugely affected by pressure buoyancy aids which may have been swim bladder in the shallows now become oils and waxes Uh, the flesh of the animal becomes so wet that you can have a fish which is pretty much 90 percent water you know its muscles will have the same consistency as as cobwebs because it's doing all it can to survive in this huge crushing environment and this is one of the reasons why whenever there are photographs that appear of deep sea fish you know at the surface the poster child here being the blobfish you know there you go it's called a blobfish because it's all slimy and you know it looks like me first thing on a saturday morning it's not a pretty sight well what you're seeing there is a fallacy you're seeing there uh, an animal which relies on a thousand times the pressure that we're currently facing to keep all its flesh in the right place so when they come to the surface you can really see the effects of these weak muscles these thin wet bones this thin wet cellular fluid as they just blob onto the floor so pressure acts as a barrier to life okay moving either up or down obviously we get the down bit moving up as i said the blobfish it it isolates you in the part of the ocean where you have evolved to exist and and this is why it's so very hard to access for us and the physical constraints of the machines that we can build but also the the biological constraints on our own bodies i mean human divers are limited to such a shallow range you can go online and find the the deepest scuba dives and they they they're getting deeper and deeper and deeper yet but you're still talking you know in the hundreds of meters you're still talking a a minor fragment of how deep the ocean goes i should also point out here that actually the deep ocean temperature wise it's a bit chilly but it's all pretty much the same temperature i mean on average the deep sea is about four degrees now yes that is chilly there's no doubt about that but when you think about it that's remarkably warm you know it's it's certainly warmer than the waters you'll get in the the arctic or the antarctic so temperature really doesn't play that much of a role in the deep ocean save for a few little snibbly bits that we'll we'll get to later and that's a that's a technical term ladies and gentlemen snibbly bits don't worry i, I went to university for three years to be able to say that so when we are visiting the deep ocean to get over this pressure, we have these submarines that have huge, thick armour on them and massive viewing windows. When, well, actually, no, tiny, massive viewing windows are fantastic. Uh, what would that be? A paradox. Fantastic paradox for you there. So the subs do have viewing win- windows, but they are can be 15, but they can be 15 centimetres thick. All right, that is serious stuff. And they are often curved or cone-shaped because these are the strongest shapes to be able to withstand the pressure so the actual aperture if you will if you imagine a cone and the cone would be pointing um how to describe this so the thin end of the cone would be the area inside the submarine and then it would expand outwards uh, towards the outside and you know you the aperture would only be about the size of a human eye but then would increase to, to a larger viewing area through this 15 centimeters of glass i mean it's it's incredible stuff 
science is moving on, technology is moving on, and there are, as viewing windows want to increase in size, there have been some which have had glass made that is nearly 12 inches, 26 centimetres or more thick. That is, that's a brick wall of glass. And and I say glass, of course it isn't the kind of glass you would have in your windows or even that you'd pour a, a nice cold beer into. It's super this and textile that. But if you want to know about glass, find yourself a different podcast, all right? It's marine biology, kind of. <laughs> right, so those are the big physical factors. And I've given you a little idea of, of just how difficult they are to withstand just for us humans. But then there is, of course, one overriding factor that affects any habitat, no matter where it is, and that is food. Now, it's easy for us to understand food chains, food webs, rather, and, you know, you go back to, again, biology in school, you have sun makes grass grow, cow eats grass, human eats cow. You know, very, very simple food chain slash food web there. Well, that's a bit of a problem, isn't it? Because I've already said that in the deep ocean, we're not getting any sun. So the the grass, if you will, in, in this case, which in the ocean, the grass could be considered the phytoplankton. This, these are the animals that absorb the sunlight and create sugars and things feed on them. And so a food chain, food web occurs. Well, <laughs> there is no phytoplankton down in the deep ocean, but there is a lot of life there. So what's going on? Well, not being reliant on the sun has created a very unique ecosystem. The first most important thing would be something called marine snow. Okay, and this is a fabulous thing. And if at any point you want to pause this podcast and go and have a look at some of these images online, I recommend that you do. They are wild and wonderful and incredible to see. But marine snow, beautifully aptly named, it is essentially the coagulated remains of everything from the upper sunlit waters. So coming back to our simple food chain, so we have sunlight causes phytoplankton to grow and then fish eats phytoplankton and bigger fish eats that fish and so on and so forth. Well, what about the phytoplankton that doesn't get eaten, that just dies and, and or falls out of the sunlight and so it can't survive anymore? Well, that starts to sink. What about when the fish that ate that plankton, what about when he gets munched himself? Well, there are going to be scales and blood and slime that goes everywhere as he gets munched. And let's not forget that after he's been munched and he's travelled through the digestive system of his predatory (laughs) muncher, he's going to pop out the other end, isn't he? So that's what marine snow is. It is this coagulation of faeces, of blood, of mucus, of snot, of old uh, plankton tests. These are the glass uh, chambers that plankton live in. it's, It's a combination of everything, and it really does fall like snow. As these particles drift down through the shallow sunlit waters and start getting into the deeper waters, things like pressure, they push them together, they get bigger and bigger and bigger, and there is a huge ecosystem and a vast amount of biological evolutionary adaptations which have evolved to catch marine snow, okay? Really, really interesting. So these animals spend their whole lives basically siphoning, falling snot and blood and feces. It's good stuff. Now, for the marine snow that does make it past the jellyfish and uh, fantastic things like vampire squids and all other manner of, of different creatures, which, again, we will come to later, for the marine snow that does actually get past and makes it to the bottom of the ocean, you end up with this rich, thick slime. And there's a whole range of different creatures which will feed on that slime, okay? Again, we're going to come to them in a bit. We're going to come to them in a bit. So that's one way. We then also have deep-sea reefs. Now, this may initially sound a bit mad, but these reefs that we have in the ocean, sometimes they are made of, of corals because there are very specialist corals that can exist in the dark, feeding using the stinging tentacles that they have as opposed to needing the sun's light so you can get that deep sea reef yep corals no worries but 
sometimes all a reef needs to be to act as what we refer to as EFH or essential fish habitat. All a reef sometimes needs to be is a rocky outcrop. So something that can act as a barrier, a windbreak, if you will, for these underwater currents. So if you suddenly have an area where these underwater currents are hitting and then passing over, you get this this oasis in the, the deep and you will get a huge ecosystem appearing on there. All of animals which are looking to feed on the passing particles that are now having to avoid this roadblock on the ocean floor. So something as simple as that uh, will create new habitat. A, a prime example would be look at the footage of, say, the Titanic. I mean, yes, there's a lot of things going on there, but one of the main things that the Titanic on the bottom of the ocean will do for life is just be a feature, just something that can disrupt the flow of water and anemones, sea fans, even just fish that pick little particles straight out of the water column, they will then congregate on this area. What about predators, though? You know, the the, the deep ocean has some very characteristic predators, doesn't it? Things like the, the giant squid, that kind of thing. Well, they, they, they're an interesting scenario, okay? And we're going to come back to them later, but I haven't forgotten of them. Now, one of the most incredible things that happens in the deep ocean, in my opinion anyway, is something called the daily vertical migration. So we've already said, haven't we, this is a huge habitat, 66%, this is a huge habitat, 66% of the Earth's surface, 25% of all known life, probably more. Well, <laughs> every day, this life, this huge ecosystem moves it moves upwards in what is the largest migration of life on the planet and it happens every single day or rather I should say every single night and we didn't even know about this until sonar was invented during World War II and when it was first noted when it was first recorded the sailors that saw it they uh, you know they so sending down the sonar I don't know if, if anyone here has seen the output from sonar but it basically gives you an idea of where the bottom is and if something's there like a submarine and whatnot so they're out in the ocean and they, they send down the sonar and they'd see this physical layer you know oh okay big physical layer there don't know what that is maybe it's the bottom of the ocean fine and then they notice that this huge physical layer moved at night it moved upwards and that didn't make any sense. <laughs> so how was this moving? And it was moving every night like clockwork. Well, what was actually happening was the sonar that was being pulsed down into the ocean was making contact with the millions and millions of organisms there that when night fell, all the organisms that were waiting down in the darkness would start to move up the water column. Now, this would all start with zooplankton. So phytoplankton, as we've briefly discussed, these little greenhouses of life as they are, they need to be in the sun, they need to be making their sugars all the time. But zooplankton, so these are animals like copepods, which are tiny crustaceans. Zooplankton can also include things like jellyfish or crab larvae, this kind of stuff, right? It's the soup of the sea. During the day these zooplankton, they don't want to be in the surface waters. They're going to get munched, or they might even get blitzed by just the UV rays that could kill them because of their intensity, so they sink down. But at night, it goes dark, and these zooplankton, they well, they're hungry, and they want to feed on the phytoplankton, so they move up. But the thing is, as they move up, they pull with them many other predators. So the fish that will feed on the zooplankton move up. The fish that will feed on the zooplankton fish move up. Everything moves up. So what the the sailors were seeing was their sonar bouncing off the multitude of swim bladders that were from all these deep sea fish that were moving up in the, to the surface waters to feed. 
incredible. And this happens every day, every single day. It's the largest migration of biomass on the planet. And we still don't really know quite how it works. So we, you know, we know that light plays, you know, a big role in this, uh, certainly for the animals closer to the surface. But the the migration happens right down into the deep ocean, deep, deep ocean as well. So down, you know, past a thousand kilometers or, or, or more, there is no light. So there is no signal for these animals to start moving up. So it is incredible that the deep sea zooplankton, which do exist, we've talked about some of the environments that they might exist in, they start to move with this daily vertical migration. It's incredible. If you get a chance, there are some fabulous infographics and, and, and little small movies and stuff that you can watch kind of showing this flow of life. And it's it is amazing and i was when i was researching uh, this podcast one thing that i read that i thought was fantastic was when it comes to one thing i read which i thought was fantastic is when it comes to the daily vertical migration of the deep water zooplankton that they could actually be moving because of the sound they could hear or detect or pick up the sound of this huge stampede of life happening in the waters above them. So they themselves think, right, it's time for us to go up as well. Because there's a lot of benefits, you know. The As we said, the zooplankton go up because they can start feeding on the phytoplankton, seemingly in a safer position. There's less visual predators around and that kind of thing. But there are other benefits as well. You move up in the water column, you can maybe, it's a little bit warmer perhaps, you don't know. Certainly if you are one of those animals that plays around in that top layer that kind of you know 1000 meters to 200 meters area you can you know you really live in la vida <laughs> but there's some there's some real benefits to doing this daily migration which all responds to getting a good feed and not being fed upon speaking of which carbon sinks Yes, and I'm not talking about some new fashion that you're going to find coming out on Escape to the Country or, or you know, any other house-based program. No. This big movement of life is very, very important for the carbon balance on our planet. So we, we talked marine snow very briefly, and for the sunlit waters, the phytoplankton, when they die or they get eaten, they travel down marine snow. Great. So straight away you're talking about animals which are or, or rather phytoplankton which are absorbing carbon dioxide at the surface it's being contained packaged in their their tissues and it's being passed down to the deep ocean well that's that's a winner that's good because if we can take carbon dioxide away from the surface and down into the deep sea even better but marine snow can be a bit difficult to get down there it's you know there's there's so much pressure on, and I'm not talking physical pressure, I'm talking about just everything. There's so much pressure to, to feed that even the smallest flakes were going to get nibbled up very much as soon as they appear. So it's not, while it does act as a carbon sink and it does act as something to pull carbon away from the surface, it's not massively efficient. But the daily vertical migration is. Because as these animals move up into the shallower waters and feed and feed and feed and feed and feed, they move back down when the sun comes up again. And as they move back down, they defecate. They will then start releasing all the chemicals and particulate and carbon that they collected in the surface waters, but this carbon hasn't had to run the gauntlet of two, three, four hundred meters of snapping nibbly things, again another technical term, to get down to the deep ocean. It has been transported that distance already in the gut of whatever chewed it up. So this is an incredible way to have a daily uptake of carbon from the surface waters and then take it down and trap it in the deep sea because the deep sea could be a real savior for us when it comes to dealing with carbon dioxide we already know how hugely important the deep ocean is to the planet regarding carbon dioxide to the extent of things like chalk and limestone i mean these are sedimentary rocks 
which have acted as carbon sinks, you know, uh, limestone calcium carbonate, you know? So this life falling to the bottom of the ocean or being transported to the bottom of the ocean via the daily vertical migration gets trapped in the sediments and becomes the limestone of many, many millennia to come. But if we can take it out of the air, balance around climate, that is a good thing. I mean, again, there's some fantastic theories and conjecture going on at the moment saying, well, what about using the deep ocean as a way to deal with CO2? And there's even some suggestions that we start to collect CO2 for our atmosphere and then inject it into the deep sea, (laughs) inject it into the sediments at the bottom of our ocean. And that's that's mad, (laughs) but I like it. Now, let's talk about animals. We had a good chat about the environment. I hope that I've given you a rough idea of of the deep sea. It is this huge, vast, vast area, and as I say, it's full of life. Every time that science takes a journey into the deep ocean, new species are found. We learn so much, and there is there are jars and jars and jars of specimens around the world that have been collected that still haven't been taxonomically identified, so there's always something coming up. But there are a few real interesting creatures that I did want to highlight to you. So, first things first, giant tube worms. Okay. Now, these are an interesting one. I talked, didn't I, about you had these areas in the ocean, in the deep ocean, which act as these oases, these little bits of life. Well, giant tube worms live next to something called hydrothermal vents. And this is a fantastic geological process where essentially water is drawn deep down into the crust of the earth. It is superheated. It picks up a ton of really powerful chemicals and, and metals and all that kind of stuff and then is ejected back up to the bottom of the deep ocean and as it appears it appears you know at two three four hundred degrees c it appears damn hot and it can you know melt lead that kind of thing but it will create these fantastic they're called black smokers there are these towers of mineral deposit as the super hot superheated heavily laden chemically laden water hits the cold deep ocean water and then starts to precipitate out Well, believe it or not, this underwater hellscape is actually inhabited. In fact, it's one of the richest habitats in the deep sea. Hydrothermal vents were only discovered in the 70s because that was about the sort of time that we could get down there in in submersibles. And they answered a question that science has been asking for a long time, which is how did life begin on this planet? Because here you have, in the deep sea, these hydrothermal vents, they are entirely cut off from the sun we've covered that already but they don't rely on food coming down from the surface waters to survive because things like giant tube worms which can grow to three meters in length they are seriously big chaps they don't have a mouth they don't even have an anus they just have this special tissue packed into their bodies called a trophosome which is full of chemosynthetic bacteria So this is bacteria that will take chemicals and with it make energy, make sugars, make things for the tube worm to grow. Basically, it is the start of a food chain, a food web. So finding these hydrothermal vents and finding these tube worms with no mouth, no anus, no way of feeding, certainly completely self-reliant from any kind of sunlit uh, interloper I didn't quite know what word to go for there you know they they could be cut off entirely from the surface waters and still thrive and survive and this now is where science believes earth began because while the surface of the earth was just a maelstrom of madness going on and different huge climate changes and all that kind of jazz we're talking long before the dinosaurs here millions and millions of years before the dinosaur the deep ocean would have been pretty damn stable and something like a hydrothermal vent spewing this chemical rich water would have provided this petri dish for life to begin so there's a really good chance that giant tube worms we we haven't evolved from giant tube worms <laughs> although looking at some of our politicians i, I do wonder uh <laughs> finding giant tube worms finding these thriving incredible ecosystems entirely self-sufficient from the sun 
really did blow scientists' minds back in the 1970s, and they're still researching them now because that could have been the crucible for all life, all complex life on the planet. Okay, so there's some real poster children of the deep ocean, and one of them has to be the vampire squid. I briefly mentioned it before. Uh, again, if you want to pause this podcast and have a look on, you know, for some images of these animals, please do. They are incredible creatures, and I'm not going to even attempt to try and describe them because it wouldn't do them justice. All right. So the vampire squid, they're only small, um, about 30 centimeters long at best. And they live in what's called the oxygen minimum zone. So this is between about 600 and 900 metres. And they are likely to be one of the very few complex organisms to actually spend their entire time in this zone. The oxygen minimum zone is exactly what it sounds. It is an area of the deep ocean where there is not a lot of oxygen. This is just due to all the currents that go on around the world. So obviously the surface waters get well oxygenated and then there are different upwellings and down uh, downwellings across the, the globe and we get this huge oceanic conveyor belt. But like any good circular conveyor belt, the bit in the middle kind of ends up being the doldrums. And so... The oxygen minimum zone is an area of the deep ocean which gets very, very little mixing. So oxygen there is at a real premium. So any large organic is quite rare. Now seeing the vampire squid in there is superb. You know, they have adapted to exist with very, very little oxygen. They live a very, very sedentary lifestyle, eating mainly marine snow. They will wait for it to to you know, precipitate down from above and just pick it clean out of the air or try and net it up with sort of mucousy uh, tentacles. But they will also hunt to an extent. They are happy to grab passing plankton or, or jellies or small crustaceans. And they, like many other animals in the deep sea, and I mentioned this earlier, can create light. I won't go into the biological function of how they do this right now. It's very cool. It's for a different podcast. <laughs> but they can create light from their bodies and they can glow from the tips of each one of their arms and they even have a couple of glowing spots back on the top of their mantle, kind of like the head, if you will. So scientists, again, we think that this glowing is a great way of attracting prey because in the deep ocean, if something makes light, it's interesting, okay? Why is it making light? Uh, could it be trying to attract a, a mate? Could it be trying to attract prey? Is it trying to, you know, avoid being attracted? The, I know that sounds like, how can it be doing two opposite things at once? The way that animals use light in the deep ocean is fantastic, all right? So the vampire squid, like many other fish, you'll probably know that the angler fish is a famous one, isn't it, for having that glowing lure, which, you know, the, what's the Finding Nemo thing? Oh, I can't remember. You, you all, you've all seen it. You know it. Don't make me repeat it. <laughs> so light, superb for attracting animals towards you, at which point the vampire squid can just gobble them up. Now, it really is called a vampire squid. Its Latin name, Vampertuthis infernalis, is the vampire squid from hell. Okay, and if you see one, take the time out, have a look, you'll understand why. When one of these animals is threatened, it will curl up into a ball by pulling its arms back round its body and exposing what look like spikes, but they're actually very soft little extensions. If you continue to stress it out, uh, then it can actually launch globs of sticky, glowing mucus from the tips of its arms. And this is where, again, light plays another role so it uses light to attract food towards it but by firing mucus blobs at predators that in itself is a distraction you know they follow the predator will follow the light and if the blob hits the predator well then it illuminates the predator it makes the predator itself now a target incredible stuff really really cool there is a particular fish that really takes using light in the deep ocean to whole whole extra level so they're called stoplight loose jaw fish. 
which in itself is a superb name. About the same size as uh, the vampire squid. You don't get a lot of, of, of massive, massive predatory fish in the deep sea. So about 30 centimetres. And it really does live up to its name. So let's start from the beginning. Stoplight. Well, we, I suppose we in the UK would call it a traffic light. They have uh, on their, their head, around their eyes, multiple photophores. So these are the the organic structures which create light for the fish. And they have one which is red and one which is green, hence, you know, stoplight, traffic light. And this really is very, very interesting because uh, the, the green light that they use, science isn't 100% sure quite what that's for because, oh, I, I promised I wouldn't get into physics, but now I am. As light enters the uh, the ocean, I mentioned, didn't I, that you know these photons heat up the water molecules and they get lost. So light gets weaker and weaker and weaker. But of the wavelengths of light, it is the red light that goes first. So you think if you put a light through a prism or you pick up a Pink Floyd album cover, you can see the different colours that come from white light. Well, the red light goes first. And that means that anything in the deep ocean which is coloured red just appears black. It is the perfect camouflage. But the stoplight loose jaw has an incredible way around it. Of its two photophores, the red one obviously produces red light. And if you shine red light on a red animal, it will glow <laughs> it will flash up like a neon sign so the stoplight loose jaw can completely bypass one of the best indeed one of the strongest camouflage methods of the deep ocean i.e color yourself red well no don't because the stoplight loose jaw with this red photophore he's essentially got some x-ray specs that allow him to see through all that camouflage and the other awesome thing about this is because red light is essentially just completely absent in the, the deep ocean, unless you're a stoplight loose jaw, no one can see it. So the stoplight loose jaw can beam this red light out all the time if it chooses, and it will not give away its own position. I mean, that is seriously clever. What is also interesting, though, is the green photophore, because... We can't quite figure out what that's for just yet, which is nice. Because, of course, there's no green light down in the deep ocean either. And the green photophore is much smaller. And, well, it could be interspecies communication. It, it, it could be predator defense. We don't know. Very, very cool. Very cool. Um, okay, so we've done the stoplight bit. What about the loose jaw bit? Well, their jaw is massive. It's about a quarter of the whole fish's body is just this jaw. And it is not connected to the fish's throat via any skin whatsoever, all right? So if you feel your own jaw and you feel underneath your jaw, just above where your, your larynx is, that's obviously where your tongue is and all that kind of jazz, and you feel underneath it, all that skin there, gone, okay? It is just a loose jaw with then a hole, tight little uh, hole which would begin the start of the animal's esophagus having a jaw like this essentially like a, a, a man trap if you will without the skin there with huge teeth allows this animal to catch prey that would be much much bigger than you would expect you know it, it can catch something that would rip its mouth open but haha, no skin won't rip. That means that it can catch a big bit of prey and then just slowly kind of work through it in its own time. Very, very clever. The stoplight loose jaw fish. Um, speaking of catching big bits of prey, I'm sure many of you will know this next one. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Again, check him out. The gulper eel. Okay. Quite big, decent sized animal, nearly a meter long. We're talking sort of 75, 80 centimeters, although most of that is tail. Uh, <laughs> the gulper eel, he has a huge mouth, all right? Uh, it's also known as the pelican eel. That might give you an idea of, of quite where I'm going with this because its mouth 
mirrors that of a pelican, or perhaps a pelican mirrors that of the gulper eel. It has this in tiny little head, but huge, huge jaws, and a vast, distendable throat pouch. And this means that this bad boy can eat whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And this is really, really useful in the deep sea. So I said before, I'd come back to the idea of predatory fishes in the deep sea. Well, perhaps you've already seen now something that's very important, which is that you need to feed whenever there's an opportunity. So being adapted to catch anything, regardless of what it is, whenever it comes along really is one of the only things you can do you can't go swimming around looking for this stuff you you'll die of exhaustion before you find anything you've got to sit you've got to stay you've got to wait you've got to use fantastic things like the loose jaw does to to find prey but then when you find it the last possible thing you want is it's too big to eat well not if you are the gulper eel and so we know that they capture huge there is some fantastic pictures online of, of gulper eels with massive fish inside their uh, their throat pouches and they will eat anything from fish to squid to again deep sea crustaceans or jellies whatever they will go for but we also have discovered that they will feed almost in the same way that one of the big filter feeding whales might so they will f- potentially prey on deep sea shoals of of squid or krill and just use that big mouth to just scoop as much food in as they can at any one time and then slowly digest it. Very cool. Okay, let's go to right to the bottom of the ocean now and we're going to go for the sea pig, which is a beautiful creature. Okay, he gets a lot of grief, the sea pig, but I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. So he is a type of sea cucumber and wow, it is a weird looking thing. <laughs> it just is. It's just an absurd absurd creature Uh, again only a tiddler this one 10 to 15 centimeters if you're lucky and they will move over the sediments at the bottom of the ocean feeding permanently so sea cucumbers that we see in the shallow waters are very good at sucking in a load of sand that sand is then stripped of anything potentially edible inside their stomachs using stomach acids and enzymes and all that kind of jazz if you can even call them stomachs. I'm keeping it simple here. Fisher-Price, my first sea cucumber. And then they pass out the sand. Well, the deep sea ooze, that's probably the best way to describe it, is, uh, yeah, it, it's just a milkshake of muck. And the sea pigs, they copy their shallow water brethren and they are constantly shoveling, 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 shoveling into their mouths, allowing their bodies to tear off any kind of morsel that are connected to these super fine particles before passing it back out the other way now they they don't this is an interesting one they they don't herd together as in this you know a way that a, a, a shoal of fish would or a flock of birds but they are quite often found in really large groups and this is probably just down to the fact that if the feeding is good in one spot it will attract a lot of them. So deep-sea submersibles have filmed huge herds, if you will, of sea pigs, 500 strong, just cruising across the bottom of the ocean, which is, you know, really, really incredible. And they also play an important role in kind of recycling that little bit of nutriment that is in the slime, that, you know, turning it over, gently ploughing the sediment, if you will. So they, you know, again, fabulous creature, totally weird, making a niche for itself in this incredible, difficult, hardcore, you know, it's in, it's an environment that would make 2020 look like a walk in the park, you know. Right, a couple more for you, uh, and, and then we'll have a look at some of the issues that the deep ocean are facing. I wanted to mention the hagfish because they are also known as the slime eel, and they use slime as a defensive mechanism you, you may have seen them they, they've they've been on quite a few shows they sound like some famous <laughs> some famous movie star here but they've been on quite a few shows and they are fabulous creatures they've existed for a hell of a long time very ancient fish so much so they don't actually have jaws uh, i'm not talking about the film they don't have jaws the way ours work they have uh, the best way to describe it would be two 
uh, vertical cheese graters that come together and will pinch onto food and then not let go. But they can't physically chew, so they will have to tie themselves in knots to pull out lumps of flesh, which, again, is probably something many of you have seen. Being slimy really assists in this. If you're all covered in mucus, you can turn yourself into a knot very easily. But that slime is incredible for defence. They are able to accurately fire it three metres or more, preferably into the mouth of a potential predator, where it will just gunk up. I believe that the American Army and Navy are doing loads of experiments on hagfish slime because it can just absorb so much water so quickly. It has a thousand and one potential uh, benefits to it. We also have found out that these guys hunt, which is very cool. We used to believe that they were just scavengers, but no, they do actually hunt. And again, they hunt with slime. So they will sit in a burrow and wait for a prey item to go past. They'll grab it. But again, we've said about their teeth, they can't chew. So they'll just grab it and pull it into their burrow. They can't land that killing blow, biting it round the throat like some kind of giant lion. So they do what they're best at. They make slime. And while they're in their burrow holding on to the struggling animal, they will fill the burrow full of slime, suffocating the animal in mucus. And then they can feed on it whenever they like. Now, finally, I wanted to mention possibly the most metal-sounding fish, or sorry, possibly the most metal-sounding animal in all the deep ocean, zombie worms. (laughs) Yes, that's what they're called. Zombie worms are pretty much the last thing to leave uh, a corpse that has made its way to the ocean floor. So, you know, something like a whale or tuna falls down from the sunlit above and loads of things come to feed on it. Your hagfish come to feed on it, deep sea sharks will come and feed on it. Uh, Everything will have a go. But when it's stripped down to just the bones, it's the zombie worms that will be there until those bones have been turned essentially into dust. Now, they are actually like miniature versions of the tube worms we mentioned earlier. They rely on pouches which contain, again, symbiotic chemosynthetic bacteria that can digest the minerals and the chemicals within the bones. The worm itself secretes an acid that allows the the bone to turn into kind of like a, a juicy soup, and then the bacteria go to work, and from that, the worm gets its feed, which, frankly, is really, really cool. So the bits that we see, the red plumes that are sticking out and wiggling in that terrible kind of creepy fashion, they're actually its gills, so that it can get as much oxygen as it can and keep the bacteria well fueled. So there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Oof, that was a, a real whistle-stop tour around a few of the creatures that I think make the deep sea just amazing. And there are so much more. I could do an entire series on the deep ocean and all the different sections. So I do apologise if you feel I've missed something. I know I haven't mentioned things like giant squid And I'm very, very glad I haven't mentioned anything silly like Megalodon. (laughs) But let's start to wrap up the deep ocean here. And sadly, we have to look at some of the issues that the largest ecosystem on the planet is facing. And it's the big C, isn't it? It's the one that we are all facing, or the big double C, climate change. And that's a big, big problem for the the ocean. I spoke very briefly before the oxygen minimum zone, these large ocean currents that transport water all over the globe, but also down into the deep ocean. And it's these downwellings of water that bring oxygen and nutrients and just keep the deep sea oxygenated. So if these currents are lost, then the deep sea could become anoxic. This means there's no oxygen there, and that would cause vast amounts of of death just oh you don't even let's not go there all right 25% of all life on the planet could suddenly lose its oxygen supply so that's not good also it, as the currents change you would have less warm water being moved and cooled and pulled down into the deep sea so you would end up with faster heating of the surface waters and again that's going to have a huge impact just straight away on us so classic climate change causing 
yet another problem, you know. We've only known about it since the 1900s, but never mind. Ah, Now, a new one that I'm not particularly thrilled about that's kicking the deep sea right where it hurts is deep sea mining. So with the huge boom of, let's call them microcomputers, and I'm talking about anything that's small that works as a computer with so you know your your smartphone um any handheld device uh, all that kind of jazz these these tiny things sat navs all that all that stuff they use uh, rare earth elements and and they're they're worth now more than gold some of these rare earth elements and they're found in huge concentrations around well hydrothermal vents so when a hydrothermal vent has finished its um finished its explosion of water and they they do move away from these areas of hot water they become dormant and then they become dead and what you have are these towers of really incredible mineral deposits and so people are going down and mining them but they're mining them with these things that look like combine harvesters on steroids and they are trashing these super important vital vital habitats i mentioned that the essential fish habitat the efh uh, essential fish habitat now these deep sea uh, vents they eventually as they cool down and they become dormant and then they die off they'll become reefs in their own right these are areas where you'll get fish migrating through knowing where these reefs are they're very important stopovers they might contain corals that are super rare or incredibly slow growing and there are companies dropping just doom on them. It's not good. Um, it really isn't good. And it's so, so destructive because they're killing environments that could take tens of thousands of years to recover. Good old fishing. Oh, that's always a winner, isn't it? Deep sea fishing and deep sea dredging. Uh, they are they're bad. You know, the, the dredging, of course, can have a similar effect to the deep sea mining and destroying these very delicate deep sea habitats. But... As we are fishing out the traditional fish stocks and moving deeper and deeper and deeper, we are taking from populations that we don't understand. We're taking from populations where we don't know how many there are. We don't know their interconnections because we don't know enough about the deep sea. And that really is cutting off the branch that you're sitting on. You know, it, it's it's bad. And finally, the what has been the poster child for pollution for these past 10 years, it seems, plastics. Ugh. Plastic has found its way, if you can believe it, down into the bottom of the Mariana Trench. You know, that just goes to show how ubiquitous our plastic use has become, all right? If it's if it's got that far down, that really should be a wake-up call. You know, forget looking out into space and think where we're going to go next. We need to sort this place out first, all right? Now, the deep sea can be a hard thing to protect. There's there's no doubt about that. But what can we do? Well, my best advice to you is just support ocean charities and talk about it. That's almost... I, I, I'd rather a thousand people started talking about the effects of deep sea mining than one person signed up to a you know donate five quid a month to a charity. We need to know about these things. We need to talk about them support ocean charities because they're going to be the ones that are on the forefront of um, political decisions agreements on deep sea mining and at the moment it's a real race between the corporations that want to mine and the the scientific bodies that want to protect so keep your eyes out for things like that do your usual stuff with your fishing make sure you're, you're getting fish if you do eat fish Make sure you're getting them for a sensible source. You know this score now. You know what to do about climate change. I'm sure many of you already are. And plastics, well, plastic ain't fantastic. All right, we know that. You know what to do. Get yourself a wake-up cup. <laughs> wake-up cup cup. Get yourself multiple wake-up cups. And you don't need any of that single-use plastic anymore. So with some very, very minor changes that I'm sure many of you are already doing, in which case get your mates doing it as well, we can help protect the deep ocean because it is a huge place. It is a really, really big place. It's hard to reach. It's hard to access. And that that's really a positive. It's something that will keep it protected from us 
for a little while yet. But let's let's not let the last great frontier, the alien world that is planet Earth, that we can't even access properly, let's not let that place get trashed for the sake of a new cell phone, eh? Eh? Good on you. Well, look, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. You know, I really mean it. Thank you so much. I'll be back soon with another incredible ecosystem and some wonderful stories to tell about it. And until then, be awesome to the earth, be awesome to each other, and just, you know, take it steady. We'll see you next time. On